Hello everybody, Adam Cross here. Today's video is actually going to be a podcast-like format with my colleague Daniel Johnson, who is another therapist, and he has a website called Color of Thought, which he also has a podcast, which, which I recommend you to check that out. This uh, conversation will also be on that podcast, but our goal is to be able to have one or two videos like this, podcasts like this, each month to talk about different issues with psychology and the faith and therapy um, and to be able to post them. So today's conversation is really about prayer and what that looks like in the process of therapy. So I hope you enjoy it. Um, it's it's our first one, so we'll get better as we go along in, in all the little details and logistics, but we hope you enjoy it and thank you for watching. Okay. Okay, we are recording here too, so. Cool, all right. Let me, there we go, all right. Um, great, how do you wanna start this? <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we had some great content Monday and then lost all of it, so, <laughs> but I've so, heard that happens. At, at the risk of rerunning the conversation, we'll try to be mm -hmm. more spontaneous, but I imagine we'll cover some of the same ground, so. Yeah. Uh, and, and actually, one thing I was thinking in preparation for round two was we didn't really cover um, the types of prayer. So I think classically in the catechism, there's what, five types of prayer. And I can never remember them, but I know there's adoration, thanksgiving, petition, and then there's two others that I can never remember. And, and I assume inter there's intercessory. Oh, on behalf of another. That makes sense. Okay. Uh -huh. Probably subspecies of petition. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. That's okay. No, I mean, I'm just average and I could look it up real quick. Eh? Yeah. Sure. Sure. I mean, I mean <laughs> but, but my question more is first of all, it's just interesting that this, this elementary division of prayer didn't come up in our conversation. Mm. So part, and then it's, interesting that I have forgotten some of them. So maybe I don't intercede for a lot of people is what I'm revealed. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I wonder if um, there isn't a reason why that division didn't come up. So is there a type of prayer which just doesn't get featured or talked about in therapy? Mm. Or is there one type of prayer? Maybe this is a better question. Maybe there's one type of prayer which does come up a lot as therapeutic or as psychologically helpful. I don't yeah. know. Which, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, we've, we're talking about scrupulosity. Um, I think my idea is to help them get into just a rhythm of talking to God more. Um, I think that might partially just be breaking that image of God as like a judge. and he's going to tally it up at the end. Um, I find with scrupulosity, that's that's a tendency is, you know, God is just checking off boxes. Like, oh, you messed up. Oh, you messed up. Um, so having a more personal prayer life and just being able to talk to God about what's going on in their day is, is what I recommend. And that might just be my own bias. Um, but I think it, it tries to, you know, break that scrupulous, um, fearful, Part of the, the prayer life. Yeah, so part of what we're sensitive to, um, just as systems theorists, you know, just as marriage and family therapists, we're very sensitive to the 
um, how prayer is used in the context of our relationship with God and our experience of our relationship to God. So you talk about that kind of um, all-knowing judge as as kind of uh, an extreme uh, understanding of God or experience of God, typical of people with, with scrupulosity or OCD, um, though not unique to them by any stretch of the imagination. But it's, it's an interesting thing those five types of prayer, and assuming I haven't left out a super crucial one by forgetting the fifth, um, they're not, <clears throat> it seems to me that that division is more about the quality of statements used in prayer and not the kind of relationship I have towards the one to whom I'm praying, mm -hmm. you know? So like adoration, that is the kind of, response we have towards a creator or the kind of response we have towards um, a savior. It's just pure thanks thanks and and appreciation for his sublimity. Petition is the kind of thing we have towards, well, I, I think towards a judge, absolutely. We petition a judge all the time, even in yeah. colloquial terms. And I wonder if we couldn't go through the list like that. Each yeah. type of prayer augments or, or challenges our relationship with God in a different way, develops our relationship with God in a different way. Yeah, true. That's good. And I did, uh, I did look it up real quick. So <laughs> what's the I fifth one? Um, so we have, let's see, adoration, petition, intercession, Thanksgiving, and praise. Okay. So I was lumping Thanksgiving into adoration there. And it, it's a it's an interesting thing. And in, when I was doing my philosophy program in seminary, one of the professors insisted that um, there's this this logical rule that things are divided either into groups of two or three, and very few things in the universe necessitate a fourth division. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, when I lumped intercession underneath petition, it's you know, not that they aren't different types of prayer, but that those two are closer related than, say, um, adoration is to intercession. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, that's all. I'm making a logical distinction there, which may or may not be helpful to anyone. But yeah, petitions could be more personal, right? Asking God for certain things versus intercessions is praying for other people for certain things. So that might be the main difference. But, yeah, um, it's definitely a different kind of relationship with God. You know, intercession is the relation of kind of the ancient Roman patron. You know, I go to a guy who can fix things or take care of things for me um, or for my friends, uh, which is, you know, it puts you in a different relationship to God and to um, the person in need. You know, you're the one, um, not in a position necessarily of privilege, but you're, co you're a conduit of of grace for this other person of sharing the life of God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, it is interesting that these forms of prayer, a lot of them are really close, you know, to the point where in the English language, you'd probably just not distinguish them at all. I think adoration with, you know, which is also, is, you know, we, we would commonly even just, I think, assumedly pair that with, with praise, right? That's not really any different, but I think to break it down, it's, you know, worshiping or adoring God is <clears throat> like you said, 
worshiping the creator and you know acknowledging the glory of god and the greatness of god or praise might be more of you know thanking him and seeing his glory in our personal lives and um you know offering up our our you know ourselves to god and that so they're, they're very close but yeah there is a i guess a big deal of difference when we put it into practice yes well and and i like this this track where we're going down the idea that different types of prayer help develop different parts of our relationship to god because yes I, and and maybe your distinction there so adoration is more the reaction to um, a creator or to one who sustains us in being or um, even to the one who has executed the act of salvation for us it's those are seemingly cosmic broad uh, generic all-encompassing activities whereas you you differentiated thanksgiving there to kind of the the intimate personal response i have to individual things that have worked out you know i got to wake up again today um i got to uh have enough food uh and the means to procure that food um i had a good interaction with my boss i had a podcast that successfully recorded the second time around you know um whereas it's not as if those are distinct in God. I mean, he's still going to be the creator who has particularly created this moment to work out this way for me. But it, it is a different reaction or a different interaction on my part to adore mm -hmm. him versus an act of thanksgiving. They are different interactions. I yeah. Think. Yeah. And I think part of therapy could be, and I think you mentioned this, is developing those different types of prayer in our relationship with God, depending on where we are at and what we're experiencing or struggling with. That, um, yeah, it could even be to the point of, well, you know, maybe we need to petition God, you know, more. Maybe that would be more helpful um, as you're going through this, because <clears throat> I find that some people in therapy who are really struggling, they can feel a sense of guilt in praying for themselves or asking anything for themselves. Um, and so even that examination of their relationship with God, okay, what does that mean if there's kind of that fear or guilt of even just, you know, asking God for ourselves? Um, and then it could be the opposite end where it's only petition, right? And, and you know, we need to examine how we can offer praise and thanksgiving um, and being, you know, developing more gratitude. Um, so yeah, I guess it, it, it's interesting how all that can come up and, um, you know, within the context of the person and what they're experiencing and struggling with. Well, I'm continuing to take this from the perspective of uh, people who, who meditate on relationship and, and help people solve problems through their relationships. I've always, at least on an intellectual level, held that the relationship with God is a very important one to explore. And I, and I like that example you give. So people who have a, um, a sense of guilt about praying for themselves or not praying enough for other people. Um, it's interesting because if that were a human relationship, if that were, you know, um, a daughter and her father, just to, mm -hmm. to 
continue the archetype, I suppose. Um, if this were a relationship between a daughter and her father, we would really dig in with a client who felt guilty about asking her dad for things. Mm -hmm. and, and that exploration would look different depending on, you know, the age of the of the, the daughter, depending yeah. on the circumstances. You know, that exploration would would be very particular very quickly. Um, yeah. But that's not something we would avoid in a conversation with a client. That's something which would be wildly important uh, in our exploration with the client. So it's, it's interesting that therapists are quick to back away from that or to avoid that when it comes to when the relationship is a, you know, the, the transcendent, omniscient, you know, omnipotent, you know, being. Um, but I think we can still explore some of that. A lot of fruit can be drawn out of that exploration with a client. Um, yeah. Not least of all, you know, so guilt asking for things for yourself. Um, yeah. I suppose that that cliche line of, well, it seems as if you don't value yourself or you don't appreciate yeah. yourself. You don't think you're worth God's attention. Um, and that can lead to all sorts of, of different things, you know, their life of sin or their their overestimation of their own guilt. Uh, I have one client very vividly. It, it stays in my mind years later. Um, committed, you know, we were talking about a couple of sins committed years ago, mm -hmm. but he had resolutely concluded that he could never be made innocent or pure again. And wow. it just, it wasn't even an option. So confession was totally ineffectual. It could never work, was the conclusion he had drawn. Yeah. Um, quite contrary to, to the life of the church. Yeah. Heartbreaking. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that, that's sad to hear that someone, and I think more people do it than we realize. They kind of put themselves in that box and they put God in the box, right? Like, I can't be forgiven. Um, that's not a possibility. So, um, and that's sad. I think that, yeah, it's your own personal hell to say, nope, I'm, I'm beyond mercy, <clears throat> right? I can't, I can't receive that. Um, but yeah, I think examining someone's personal prayer, it does enable us as therapists to look at, you know, just family dynamics more, the attachments that maybe have occurred growing up. I mean, there's a lot there when we talk about heavenly father um, versus, a, you know, or it, we don't even have to mention the human father, but if we talk about a heavenly father, we'll kind of get all the expectations of, of the human relationships that they've experienced. So, I mean, it's, it is really helpful to bring that up and, you know, hopefully it comes up sort of naturally, but when it does, it's, it's really able to, you know, we're able to look at what, what they're expecting from relationships and how they view themselves, how they view, view uh, people that they're close to. So. No, it's, it's an important thing. And I, I think the more we talk about it here, the more I'm resolved to, <clears throat> ask my clients what what kind of statements go into their prayer life. Are they predominantly statements of petition? Are they predominantly statements of uh, I'm not worthy or uh, on behalf of others? Or are they statements of, of adoration? And it, it actually, it would be fascinating to go through those five and mm -hmm. kind of draw up 
I'm, I'm sure the Baltimore Catechism has already done this, actually, draw particular examples of the kind of statements that uh, mm -hmm. would, would qualify as that type of prayer, just yeah. so we can have a better sense of how the client is relating to God. But you bring up an, another very important point. It's almost commonplace in among Catholics that um, one's relationship with God is modeled off of one's relationship with their own father. Mm -hmm. And it's yeah. something I've really wrestled with with a lot of clients because, especially clients who have poor relationships with their father, um, and look, on one level, we all do, right? Or at least, at least we all have an imperfect relationship with our father, if not a bad relationship. And, and certainly a relationship which, no matter how good it is, is insufficient to um, perfectly move those patterns and apply them to God. It's always going to be insufficient to apply those to God. So <laughs> something I've seen now, though, let me pitch this to you. The it seems to me that naturally speaking, it's not until a client's 20s, maybe early 30s, that they really begin to uh, separate themselves enough from their parental relationships that they can begin not only to fix those on a natural level, but really begin to work and, and reform their relationship with God on a supernatural level. And it just seems to me that that's kind of the natural progression. It seems to happen a lot in people's 20s. Yeah, I think, yeah, that natural individuation. And sometimes it's hard for clients. They'll come into therapy and they'll start talking, you know, about their parents and, you know, they'll always kind of disclaimer it is, but they're, you know, they're great parents, you know, they, <laughs> they, they did this to me my whole life, but they're, you know, they're, they're great, you know, good Catholics. <laughs> and it's, it's important to kind of remind them, you know, it's okay for us to be objective and, and, or, you know, to, to really take a step back and look at what was going on. And that doesn't mean that you're, you know, we're vilifying parents, right. To take a step back and say, you know, I really like what my parents did here, here, did not like this. And, and that's, that's not only like important or, you know, a part of the process, but it, it's absolutely needed as a, an adult to be able to look back and say, that was great. I want to take that with me. And that was terrible. And I never want to do that. <laughs> and, and I think a part of this, you know, the process of looking at prayer, especially in therapy, and we, we talked about this before is, you know, from a cognitive behavioral therapy uh, perspective, we're looking at, you know, how they pray and how they are really talking to themselves, how they're kind of building this, you know, this view of, of life and, and, um, for those core beliefs that are coming up. So prayer is a lot of insight into that. Um, you know, just what, you know, how they view themselves, the feelings that are coming up about themselves, the thoughts that are coming up about themselves. And then I think it's a general reminder, like you said, that none of our, none of our earthly fathers are perfect and they're all going to fall short in comparing them to our heavenly father. And so a large part of that, especially even with CBT is that we, we need to, preach the gospel to ourselves each and every day, right? We need to be turning to scripture and the sacraments and spiritual reading to remind us who our heavenly father is, because we ultimately forget pretty quick, right? And, and we might slip into that default of, well, this is what I grew up with. This is what my father expected of me. This is what my mother expected of me, or this is my grandpa or grandma, you know? So we kind of, 
might forget or lose sight of who God is if we don't have that regular reminder of the gospel. And, um, you know, I think CBT fits into that where when we're asking clients to be aware of their thoughts and to kind of be able to stop these, these negative harmful thoughts or core beliefs and replace them with, with healthier, fruitful alternative thoughts, then, you know, that's where the gospel really comes into play because we can, you know, the gospel almost is like, is a, not a script, but it's, it's great ways that we're supposed to think and that we, we can remind ourselves of what is true, what is fruitful. So um, turning to scripture, turning to, you know, the heart of the church gives us those reminders to turn our thoughts to when we're struggling with those negative thoughts um, and, and core beliefs. Um, yeah. Uh, somehow that connected with prayer. So <laughs> no, no, you're, you're absolutely right because uh, what's the phrase of St. Paul to put on the mind of Christ mm. is that takes work because what yeah. you're asking is you're asking or what God is asking of us is to think like he does, to see the world the way he does and to love the way he does. And and this, of course, you know, I'm, I'm speaking of the theological virtues here, faith, hope and charity, which are you know, the full flowering, so to speak, of the, the spiritual life is to perfect charity. And and in order to love, we have to see the world the way God does. And in order to see the world the way God does, we have to have the faith um, in, in the very things he's told us to have faith in, namely that he's a trinity, the incarnation, the Eucharist, um, the, the life of heaven, the intercession of the saints, all the rest. The scripture itself, of course. Um, and the tradition of the church. So, yes, as a cognitive behavioral tool, so, you know, as uh, at the risk of reducing the church to um, the, its most utilitarian aspect, yeah. um, from, a, from a cognitive behavioral perspective, reading scripture and, and participating in the liturgy uh, are the exact right way to begin to combat negative or false narratives running around in our head. So, so to the, those who suffer with the reality of confession, the actual um, forgiveness that is experienced there, the, um, it seems to me that one has to engage diligently with the teachings of the church on this subject. And it's, of course, you know, we, we have no aid from our culture or our society or, or even many of those in the church because it's very easy, like just read chapter one of Genesis and you'll have 10 things pop into your head about why this is crazy. And, and you don't even have to think hard about that. You've already got the script running around inside you. You know, um, at at the at the risk of uh, uh, well, Jordan Peterson has you know he calls this kind of being possessed by ideology. You know, you've already got the narrative running around inside of you, yeah. uh, and you've already got the objections. And so it does take time and effort to put on the mind of Christ. And it seems yeah. to me that, yes, broadly speaking, the best way to do that is through Lexio and through really 
attentive, um, I'm not going to say active, but attentive um, interaction and participation in the liturgy. And if, if that means making sure you have the missile open, great. If that means closing your eyes so you can focus on the reading, great. Whatever it takes. But yeah, that that is, it seems to me in, in the broadest way, somebody who's really involved in that kind of a moral enterprise of, I'm going to get to know God. And, and he's already told me this is the way to do it. That will that'll combat all the narratives eventually. Yeah. Um, all the negative biases eventually. I mean, that's the whole point of, of of the unitive way, right? Is to be completely united with God in um, our acts of the will as much as possible. Yeah, and I think there's a risk there within our faith that people might, and and this is I think a stigma that could exist within Christians is that well, if I just pray hard enough, my mental health will you know get better, or you know my problems will completely go away, but I think what you're saying is as we put on the mind of Christ, it requires us to look at our own mind and say, okay, this is the mind of Christ. This is my mind. And this is, you know, this is how deficient it is. So there's a, you know, a, you know, without avoiding a buzzword of being intentional, it's intentionally looking at how we're thinking, right. And, and how we are living and being able to, yeah, put that up against the mind of Christ and say, how do I need to change my life? How do I need to change how I think? Um, and I think that's probably where most people get lost is believing that they can change how they think. Um, but like you said, yeah, you know, in the liturgy and in scripture, you know, being able to, you know, apply that intentionally to how we think in our lives really does make the difference. And CBT, which is kind of cool. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of a the popular thing, more popular thing in, in the field of psychology right now. But I mean, it dates back to monks really looking at their thoughts, going to just a few things and trying to reorient their thoughts to God. Um, so, you know, it, it's not it's a both and thing. It's not just, OK, I'm I'm going to pray and my mental health will get better. But it's I'm going to be actively praying, actively seeing what God is calling me to, who God is and intentionally doing that, I think, reveals to us ourselves in, in how we think and how we live and, and how we are called to, to grow and put on the mind of Christ. So, um, yeah, there's, there's a ton of self-awareness, I think, that should come from, from praying and growing in the faith um, that will help us to encounter ourselves more as well as we build that relationship with God. And there's, you know, there's a saint who I said something like, you know, the more we know ourselves, the know we, we more the know the more we know God. Um, and of course, I don't I don't remember who said it, but um, so I think those two things are are really connected. No, it's an interesting thing. Um, so yeah, of course, the disclaimer needs to be expressed that um, lexio divina is not always or or maybe ever a sufficient replacement for psychotherapy when you need it um you know it, it's a it's pretty a close good, but <laughs> sure um but but you know look even the desert fathers as aeromedical as they were you had to have a guide and you had to have a master that you were reporting to which yes evagrius of pontus um john john um 
Klimakis, uh, yeah, John Klimakis, all those guys, um, they were wildly cognitive behavioral therapists, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and they acted very much with the same interventions that cognitive behavioral therapists act with. Mm -hmm. I think the thing to, at the very least, the thing to watch out for is one, if you're taking medication, you gotta be working with somebody who's gonna help you monitor that. Uh, when you're in therapy and you have, um, when you're trying to engage in the, in, in the spiritual and moral life, but you haven't addressed natural um, hurts, obstacles, um, and, and things which can be addressed on the natural level, that's when you need to to think seriously about incorporating the work of a the the, the eyes and the mind of a therapist as well. Now, yes, um, it it you know if anybody goes back in my podcast library, I have a lot of conversations with spiritual directors, and one of the things it seems to me is that you know you have the whole person and their whole life and their whole personality and all the things that go into making a living rational creature. And therapists are involved somewhere, you know, kind of if it were on a spectrum, you know, on the emotional and some of the thoughts, whereas the spiritual director is involved more on the virtues and the <clears throat> the virtues and some of the more concrete spiritual practices. Mm -hmm. Now, some of that overlaps if we're yeah. going to do the Venn diagram. <clears throat> but even where they overlap, it seems to me that the two offices of therapist and spiritual director are looking at the same thing from a different perspective mm -hmm. and taking into account different things. So yeah, we shouldn't at all discount <clears throat> the need for psychotherapy as part of the spiritual life. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and CBT might just be a, a secularized <laughs> form of, you know, that spiritual practice, you know, because we're mind, body and soul. And, and so these things, definitely overlap um and so well, naturally yeah naturally they are together but i think there there can be that tendency to think oh it's one or the other um well and and i think yeah. it, i think the tendency to secularize some spiritual practices is really i think there's some some great good that comes from that and mm. and so we can move a little bit into the, the cultural meditation here i guess but um the better example or the clearer example is mindfulness. You know, it is very obviously and explicitly from from Dr. Zinn on down yeah. a secularization of Buddhism. It just mm -hmm. absolutely is. It's a it's yeah. a stripping away of Buddhist practice from the object of that practice or mm -hmm. whatever, whatever it is Buddhists are praying to. I haven't quite got my mind wrapped around <laughs> that and I won't speculate here, but um it very consciously is that. But look, what what are we saying? We're saying at its fundamental level, we're saying be aware of your breathing, be aware of your posture. Yeah. Be aware of your thoughts as they come. Mm -hmm. Take a breath in between each thought so that you can and um, be prepared for the next one. You know, we're not we're not doing anything that the Desert Fathers didn't do. We're not doing anything that, you know, any human being who, you know, had to walk to work every day or walk through the fields <laughs> didn't do. Yeah. No, we're we're not asking anything. Um so so what I think that does, so in the context of CBT, what I think that does and and kind of 
Desert Father spirituality or church spirituality, it really helps us to begin the natural elements of the life of prayer mm-hmm. without kind of saying or lumping that in with, well, that's for mystics, that's for monks, that's for yeah. priests. You know, it really does bring it back down kind of the way it was in the pagan world, I imagine, mm-hmm. that prayer is going on all the time. I'm always yeah. having this relationship with the divine, and, and lots of divines, but I'm having, you know, relationship with them. Mm-hmm. And so it really does, I think the secularization has an added benefit in that it breaks down a portion or at mm-hmm. least kind of the, the entryway into the spiritual life into something much more accessible for people, it seems to me. True. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I think inviting God into every moment. And, you know, even if it's just something as simple as come Holy Spirit and just, you know, focusing on a phrase or just a couple words of prayer as we walk down the street, right? Um, and kind of letting our minds just go and just focusing on that and being present. Um, yeah, I think you're right. It does it does kind of give us more permission and it does make it accessible and saying, Oh, this is for me too. Right. This isn't, you know, it's Buddhists didn't invent breathing and, um, you know, <laughs> inviting God into every moment isn't, um, isn't just for priests, right. Or, or religious. So that's true. That's a good, that's a good point. No, and I do kind of like this, even though, you know, CBT, perhaps I don't want to malign CBT because I, I do love it, but, you know, mindfulness, certainly, it does run the risk of of cheapening um, the spiritual life in a way. But I think yeah. it simultaneously begins to um, open the door to some people who are who are interested in yeah. getting started in the spiritual life without seeing the whole mountain. They can get started on this little project, you know. Yeah. Um, I suppose it's a similar dynamic to... Uh, that mere Christianity book by C.S. Lewis, you know, for for some people who are already very active in the church, it's a a boiling down and a cheapening of the experience. But mm-hmm. for other people who don't know anything about the church, it's a great entryway. Yeah. So I, I think there's a similar, <clears throat> I'm speculating here, but I, it seems to me a very similar dynamic that mm-hmm. um, even though it's a breaking apart, it's also a, a way in for some people. So yeah, I'm all for it, I guess, is what I'm saying. But. Yeah, I, and I, I love C.S. Lewis. I think, yeah, someone who has a doctorate in theology might not find a, a kindergarten RE class very um, educational. And that, that's, you know, and not, not that mere Christianity is compared to that, but, but yeah, it's, I think it's geared towards people who are looking for the fundamentals of the faith. Um, and so if you feel like you've already gone over those fundamentals, it might, might be boring, <laughs> but you know, again, it's, we need to remind ourselves of the gospel. And sometimes we forget the fundamentals. We could go deep and forget some of the basic things that we need to know about Christ and, and who God is. So revisiting those fundamentals is essential, I think for every, every Christian, but. Well, and look at us, we, we, you had to go dig up the catechism on the first five. Types yep. of <laughs> we've generated 40 minutes of mildly interesting conversation, so, or at least it's thought provoking to me. And I hope it is for other people, but yeah. um, yes, it's an interesting thing with theology, especially and, and philosophy, even those most rudimentary observations or presentations, 
contain within them the whole truth that is the divine. And in, in a way, we never, in this life, we are never not in a kindergarten understanding of <laughs> God himself. I mean, sure. <laughs> the, 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 we may get a slightly deeper breath or, or, or um, a wider scope of things, but we're always just, you know, scratching the surface of God. Mm-hmm. And it's an interesting thing to humble oneself. And this, I mean, I, I, to bring it back to therapy, <clears throat> this is what I often find myself doing in relationship with my clients. You know, that many of them have a spiritual life that far outstrips my own and insights that are far more penetrating than my own. But it's an occasion. And so, so working with those clients is always an occasion for me to um, not only be humble, but to, to thank God for this interaction. And, and because this interaction is bringing me closer to him, it's making me more aware of him. It's making me more inclined to, to live the life he's inspired my clients to live. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. And I, I was going to say something and now I totally forgot it. <laughs> That's the nature of these. That's a good point in there. Um, these conversations. That's an interesting thing too. Um, when you're doing a, a, public presentation like this there is this need to constantly be moving forward and to mm-hmm. be dynamic it's not pause right not to leave dead air i guess is the the technical term but the human mind doesn't always work that way and yeah. with theology we really do have to sit mm-hmm. with and let these things marinate for lack of a better metaphor yeah. And yeah, and that reminded me what I was going to say. <laughs> Leading retreats too, I think. Um, I'll, I always tell, you know, or there's kind of a running joke in leading retreats for teenagers that you could tell teens, and this applies to adults too, that, you know, God loves them and it's cliche. And you could tell them that for two years straight, right? And they go on a retreat and they go to a mountain and they have this amazing experience. And then all of a sudden it clicks. Oh, God loves me. Right. Um, and so it's, it's good. It's, it's beautiful that they, they can encounter, okay, you know, God, God actually cares about you um, when they're really apathetic about themselves in the world. Um, but there's also kind of that frustration, like it took you to come a mountain to figure what we've been telling you for two years. Um, and so, you know, overall, it's still good, but I think you're right. That, Sometimes there are these personal experiences that were that. On a deeper and there a lot of that, like we in life can hear things over and over again, but when we break it down to the personal level um, and apply it, sometimes it, it clicks and means it, it's a whole different world. Right. So, um, yeah, there, there is something about really chewing on it. And then I think the the mystery of God is having that right place at the right time where things really do kind of break through our hearts and um, our, you know, our dense skulls. <laughs> no, but that, that certainly speaks to kind of the other side of this relationship that we haven't approached yet. Namely, God does have to act in the life of the person and and 
draw them to him. And um, so so what's interesting about that is that, you know, we engage or you engage when you're teaching confirmation to these teens in, you know, a, a pretty concerted effort to um, form their intellect and, and their imagination. Um, but it seems to me often what is lacking in a person's experience with God is kind of an effective um, love. You know, yeah. people walk into a church and they feel calm. Well, that's a great beginning to the spiritual life. You know, that's, that's active recollection right there. You know, your senses aren't being bombarded. But, um, but it is an interesting <laughs> thing that, <clears throat> and maybe this can only come from God, is, you know, he does have to reach down into people's hearts and really give them that moment where it all lines up and it's all... Um, all of their faculties are directed towards him in a brief moment and, and receiving from him. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I don't know exactly how they do this, but I know there's been studies where they look at um, how Catholics really come into the faith or what attracts them to the faith. Um, and I think Bishop Aaron has talked about it a little bit, but that it, I think it's like only 15% of people come to the faith and really come to know Christ through truth nowadays, right? Nowadays, it's really low. Um, and so, and I think I was one of them, I, you know, in, co in college, I grew in the faith through really having my faith attacked and needing to defend it and, and pursuing, you know, truth. Um, and so I, I started really learning what the church teaches more and more, but I think I was minority in that. And I think the statistics are showing that the majority of people are coming to the faith and and they they want to know christ through um through love and charity right and then there's the beauty category as well so those two are are much higher than the truth category and i think that's true and and people can people could not like that and i think that's a common thing um is that you know we need to catechize we need to we need to teach and form but the, like you said there is a part where sometimes it doesn't click unless we put that personal effective piece in place where they know this relational piece um, is there, right? That God is personal, that God cares, that they can be intimate with God. Um, that oftentimes is kind of the, <laughs> yeah, the piece of resistance that it's okay. Now it, now it makes sense. Um, and within therapy, that that is visible in, I guess, a few ways, because what we do, we're, we're talking about what's going on in their personal lives, right? We're not lecturing. It's not all psychoeducation. It's really digging into the joys and the hurts of their lives. And what, what does that mean, right? Like finding meaning within that. So there's a lot of room for God to work in that. And for those moments of like, oh, Oh, okay. I think God is is in is working in this, right? Or or questions or doubts that come up. So there's a lot of those clicks that happen can happen in therapy that they can examine where God is and what God's doing. No, that's precisely correct. Is that therapy becomes a unique place to uh, perceive God's work on an individual or a particular level in a way that we don't. Um, get to talk about in in catechism class or in um, theology degree programs or 
you know, with with actually, it seems to me the rare exception is kind of teenage retreats where people get to be very particular in their exploration or um, very particular in their understanding of God's work in their life. And it's an interesting thing that, um, you know, there in every human being, and this gets um, projected as maybe the wrong word, but it gets played out also in our institutions. But in every human being, there is this um, dichotomy, this this conflict between the intellect and the emotions. And and what Aristotle was very clear that this is you have to rule um, yourself like like a democracy. You know, you, you people get to not, um, like a polity, I think was his phrase, not a democracy. The idea is everyone gets to be heard a little bit, but ultimately you move the ship towards its its goal. Mm-hmm. Okay, now it's really abstract. What I mean to what I mean to, to what I'm reacting to in your statement is it is easy for people with a more intellectual bent to be dismissive or, or tyrannical towards others mm. because the, the intellect falls in love with itself very quickly. <laughs> you know, it's, its own conceits and its own conclusions. And, and it, it, whereas the emotions, you know, they're, they're a little more all over the place and freewheeling and, you know, they'll love chocolate cake one minute, but they'll switch to, you know, um, scotch the next minute, you know, <laughs> uh, it, it doesn't necessarily stay fixed. So, yeah. so it's an interesting thing that, and and this of course speaks to the the splendor of the divinity and the church he founded, that we are able to draw in and appeal to people on all of these levels, and mm-hmm. and provide a relationship with God through through all of these faculties. You know, I mean, he's not just Athena and limited to people's wisdom. He's not just Dionysus and limited to, you know, whatever it is you do in that cult. Um, you know, he's, he's pretty <laughs> universal. Um, yeah. He is universal, not pretty universal. Well, uh, <laughs> I'm sure he's pretty too, but now we've got <laughs> um, but, but you see my point, I hope, is that yeah. um, within the life of the church, it's easy for people with a more intellectual bent to dismiss the other kinds of spirituality or prayer life and people with a more emotive or effective spirituality to dismiss the, the legalistic crowd. Um, yeah. I'll avoid the terms traditional and liberal at the moment, but I think yeah. we can make a case here for some of that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, there could be a temptation to... I don't know, I guess, assume that the modern world is more emotional, which I think it probably is. And, you know, and in the past, it's been more maybe rational or reasonable. Um, and, and that might be true, too. I think therapy is looking at, OK, like you said, you know, our emotions have value and they are important and they do need to be looked at and heard, but they probably shouldn't be driving the ship. Right. The the reason needs to be steering and it needs to it does need to give ample time to understand what's going on with the anger what's going on with the the hurt and the sadness and the fear um but to not let that be driving us around right um and that's you know that's i think the role of therapy it really helps us to put things into perspective to regain that sense of even free will and control, right? So you have anxiety, there's fear there, and we're going to examine that. But that's not you, and that doesn't have to be in 
the the driver's seat right so yeah it's it's best it's the best of those two worlds put together absolutely no and and that's the work as we were saying earlier of putting on the mind of christ is you know it's it's through reading and it's through um participating in the liturgy and it's through through um intentional prayer that we come in and and much of that is the work of the intellect but we incorporate the senses and the emotions into that as well to some degree uh, especially in the liturgy obviously um and and in more um uh what is it uh, praise and worship kind of work but also just beautiful liturgy in and of itself um yeah. all of these are meant to to draw in the emotions but not to give them free reign and not to to make our experience of God limited to the emotional life. It is meant the emotions are meant to be ordered such that we can come to know, which is which is that's the act of the intellect. You know, that, that's just you got to experience, you know, the the truth. He who said he is the truth, you know, and that requires. Um, so anyways, at the at the risk of belaboring a point, you know, and, and beating it to death here, uh, it does seem to me that the role of prayer in in the context of therapy is to begin to open up to the person that, as you say, autonomy and that ability to begin to correct and have some control over the emotional life and have some sort of uh, direct those emotions towards their proper object. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I get too far afield very quickly, so there you go. <laughs> No, yeah, it is all important stuff because we can we can forget it, we can write things off, or you know. So, it's good. good. Well, that may be a safe place to stop. What do you think? Yeah, no, it sounds good. All right, my friend, that was better than than recapping. <laughs> that was a lot more fun. So, good. Right, no. See you later. <laughs> all right, yeah. Well, thanks for for having me and and talking and yeah. We'll do it again. Yeah, we'll do it again soon. Excellent.